Lesson 5 for October 22-28 to 28, Curse the Day Sabbath afternoon, October 22 Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to your word again this week. We're looking at the book of Job, and there are things there, Lord, that we need to know personally. And as we open your word, we pray that intellectually we may understand But more than that, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us, that the words that we read, the ideas that we see in your word, will be such that we will understand you and your love to us more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Let's read that again, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. As we read the story of Job, we have two distinct advantages. First, knowing how it ends, and second, knowing the background, the cosmic conflict operating behind the scenes. Job knew none of this. All he knew was that he was going along in his life just fine, when suddenly one calamity after another, one tragedy after another, swooped down upon him. And next, this man, the greatest of all the people of the East, as it says in Job chapter 1 verse 3, was reduced to mourning and grieving on a pile of ashes. As we continue to study Job, let's try to put ourselves in Job's position. For this will help us better understand the confusion, the anger, the sorrow that he was going through. And in one sense, this shouldn't be very hard for us, should it? Not that we have experienced what Job did, but that who among us, born of human flesh in a fallen world, doesn't know something of the perplexity that tragedy and suffering brings, especially when we seek to serve the Lord faithfully and do what is right in His sight. Sunday, October 23. Let the day perish. Imagine that you are Job. Inexplicably, your life, all that you have worked for, all that you have accomplished, all that God has blessed you with, comes tumbling down. It just doesn't make sense. There doesn't seem to be any reason, good or bad, for it. Years ago, a school bus went off the road, killing many of the children. In that context, one atheist said that this is the kind of thing you can expect in a world that has no meaning, purpose or direction. A tragedy like that has no meaning because the world itself has no meaning. As we have seen, though, this answer doesn't work for the believer in God. And for Job, a faithful follower of the Lord, this answer didn't work either. But what was the answer? What was the explanation? Job didn't have one. All he had was his extreme grief and all the questions that inevitably accompanied it. Question. Read Job chapter 3 verses 1 through to 10. 
How does Job first express his grief here? In what ways might any of us relate to what he is saying? Job chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light, but have none, and not see the dawning of the day, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Life, of course, is a gift from God. We exist only because God has created us, as we read in Acts 17.28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. And Revelation 4 and verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Our very existence is a miracle, one that has stumped modern science. Indeed, scientists aren't even in total agreement on what the definition of life is, much less how it came about, or even more important, why it did. Who, though, in moments of despair, hasn't wondered if life was worth it? We're not talking about the unfortunate cases of suicide. Rather, what about the times when, like Job, we might have wished that we hadn't been born to begin with. An ancient Greek once said that the best thing that could happen to a person outside of dying is never to have been born at all. That is, life can be so miserable that we would have been better off not even existing and thus been spared the inevitable anguish that comes with human life in this fallen world. So to finish today, have you ever felt the way Job felt here, that is, wishing you had never been born. Eventually, though, what happened? Of course you felt better. How important it is for us to remember that even in our worst moments we have hope, the prospect of things improving. Monday, October 24. Rest in the grave. Question. Read Job chapter 3, verses 11 through to 26. What is Job saying here? How is he continuing to lament? And what does he say about death? Job 3, beginning at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? 
For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. With kings and counsellors of the earth who built ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter of soul? Who long for death? But it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly, and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. We can only imagine the terrible sorrow that poor Job was facing. However hard it must have been to have his possessions destroyed and his health taken away from him, Job lost all his children. All of them. It's hard enough to imagine the pain of losing one child. Job lost them all, and he had ten. No wonder he wished that he were dead, and again, Job had no idea of the background behind it all. Not that it would have been making him feel any better had he known, would it? Notice, though, what Job says about death. If he had died then, what? The bliss of heaven? The joy of the presence of God? Playing a harp with the angels? There is nothing of that kind of theology there. Instead, what Job says is this for now i would have lain still and been quiet i would have been asleep then i would have been at rest job 3 verse 13 question read ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 5 and john 11 verses 11 to 14 how does what job says fit in with what the bible teaches on what happens after death. Ecclesiastes 9.5 For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And John chapter 11 verses 11 to 14 These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Here, in one of the oldest books of the Bible, we have what is perhaps one of the earliest expressions of what we call the state of the dead. All Job wanted at this point was to be at rest. Life suddenly had become so hard, so difficult and so painful that he longed for what he knew death was, a peaceful rest in the tomb. He was so sad, so hurt, that forgetting all the joy he had in life before the calamities came, he wished he had died even at his birth. And so to finish today, 
As Christians, we certainly have wonderful promises for the future. At the same time, amid present sufferings, how can we learn to remember the good times we had in the past and to draw comfort and solace from them? Tuesday, October 25, Other People's Pain Job finished his first lament as recorded in chapter 3. For the next two chapters, one of his friends Eliphaz gives Job a lecture. We'll come back to that next week. In chapters 6 and 7, Job continues to speak about his suffering. Question. How is Job expressing his pain in the following text in Job 6 verses 2 and 3? Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with me on the scales, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. This image gives us an idea about how Job perceived his suffering. If all the sands of the sea were on one side of the balances, and his grief and calamity on the other, his sufferings would outweigh all the sand. That's how real Job's pain was to him. And this was Job's pain alone, no one else's. Sometimes we hear the idea of the sum total of human suffering. And yet, this does not really express truth. We don't suffer in groups. We don't suffer anyone's pain but our own. We know only our own pain, only our own suffering. Job's pain, however great, was no greater than what any one individual could ever know. Some well-intentioned people might say to someone else, I feel your pain. They don't. They can't. All they can feel is their own pain that might come in response to someone else's suffering. But that's only and always what it is. Their own pain, not the other person's. We hear about disasters, man-made or otherwise, with large death tolls. The numbers of dead or injured stun us. We can hardly imagine such massive suffering. But as with Job, as with every case of fallen humanity, from Adam and Eve in Eden to the end of the world, every falling being who has ever lived can know only his or her own pain and no more. Of course, We never want to downplay individual suffering, and as Christians, we are called to seek to help alleviate hurt when and where we can. Let's look at James chapter 1 and verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And Matthew 25 verses 34 to 40 reads, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was a stranger and you took me in, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? 
And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Yet no matter how much suffering exists in the world, how thankful we can be that not one fallen human suffers more than what one individual can. There's only one exception, and we'll look at that in lesson number 12. So to finish today, dwell more on this idea that human suffering is limited only to each individual. How does this help you, if it does, to look at the troubling issue of human suffering in a somewhat different light. Wednesday, October 26, The Weaver's Shuttle. Imagine the following conversation. Two people are bemoaning the fate of all humanity. Death. That is, no matter how good the lives they live, no matter what they accomplish, it's going to end in the grave. Yeah, grabs Methuselah to a friend. We live, what, 800, 900 years, and then we are gone? What is 800 or 900 years in contrast to eternity? And you'll remember that Methuselah lived well past 900 years. Though it's hard for us today to imagine what it would be like to live for hundreds of years, Methuselah was 187 years old when his son Lamech was born, and Methuselah lived 782 years after that. Yet even the antediluvians, facing the reality of death, must have bemoaned what could have seemed to them like the shortness of life. Question. Read Job chapter 7 verses 1 to 11. What is Job's complaint? And we're also going to look at Psalm 39 verses 5 and 11 and James chapter 4 and verse 14. First of all, Job chapter 7, 1 to 11. Is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man, like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn, my flesh is caked with worms and dust, my skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath, my eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away... So he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him any more. Therefore I will not restrain my mouth, I will speak in the anguish of my spirit, I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And Psalm 39 verse 5, Indeed you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapour. And verse 11, When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely 
every man is vapour. We just saw Job seeking the rest and relief that would come from death. Now he's lamenting how quickly life goes by. He is saying basically that life is hard, full of toil and pain, and then we die. Here's a conundrum we often face. We bemoan how fast and fleeting life is, even when that life can be so sad and miserable. A Seventh-day Adventist woman wrote an article about her struggle with depression and even thoughts of suicide. And yet she wrote, The worst part was that I was an Adventist who observed a lifestyle proven to help me live six years longer. That didn't make sense. Of course, at times of pain and suffering, so many things don't seem to make sense. Sometimes, amid our pain, reason and rationality go by the wayside, and all we know is our hurt and fear, and we see no hope. Even Job, who really knew better, cried out in his despair and hopelessness in verse 7 of Job 7, Oh, remember that my life is a breath, my eye will never again see good. Job, for whom the prospect of death now seemed nearer than ever, still bemoaned how short that existence was, no matter how presently miserable it was at the time. And so to finish today, how should our understanding of the fall, of death, and of the promise of the resurrection help you to put into perspective the whole question of how fast life goes by? Thursday, October 27, Ma Enosh, What is Man? Again, we put ourselves in Job's position. Why is God doing all this to me? Or why is he allowing this to happen to me? Job hasn't seen the big picture. How can he? He knows only what has happened around him and to him, and he doesn't understand any of it. Who hasn't been in a similar situation? Question. Read Job chapter 7, verses 17 to 21. What is Job expressing here? And what questions is he asking? Considering his situation, why do the questions make so much sense? Job 7, verses 17 to 21. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target, so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be." Some scholars have argued that Job was mocking Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, which reads, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honour. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. 
And Psalm 144, verses 3 and 4, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. The problem, though, is that Job was written long before the Psalms. In that case, then, perhaps the psalmist wrote in response to Job's lament. Either way, the question, Ma Enosh, what is man, is one of the most important we can ask. Who are we? Why are we here? What is the meaning and purpose of our lives? In Job's case, because he believes that God was targeting him, he is wondering why God bothers with him. God is so big, his creation so vast, why should he deal with Job at all? Why does God bother with any of us at all? Question. Read John chapter 3, verse 16, and 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How do these texts help us to understand why God interacts with humanity? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And 1 John 3.1 Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. And to finish today a quote from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 563. As John beholds the height, the depth, and the breadth of the Father's love toward our perishing race, he is filled with admiration and reverence. He cannot find suitable language to express this love, but he calls upon the world to behold it. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. What a value this places upon man. Through transgression, the sons of men become subjects of Satan. Through the infinite sacrifice of Christ and faith in his name, the sons of Adam become the sons of God. By assuming human nature, Christ elevates humanity. Friday, October 28. From his book Passion of the Western Mind, page 305, Richard Tarnas writes, In an era so unprecedentedly illuminated by science and reason, the good news of Christianity became less and less convincing a metaphysical structure, less secure a foundation upon which to build one's life, and less psychologically necessary. The sheer improbability of the whole nexus of events was becoming painfully obvious that an infinite, eternal God would have suddenly become a particular human being in a specific historical time and place, only to be ignominiously executed. That a single brief life taking place two millennia earlier in an obscure primitive nation on a planet now known to be a relatively insignificant piece of matter revolving about one star among billions in an inconceivably vast and impersonable universe, that such an undistinguished event should have any 
overwhelming cosmic or eternal meaning could no longer be a compelling belief for reasonable men. It was starkly implausible that the universe as a whole would have any pressing interest in this minute part of its immensity, if it had any interest at all. Under the spotlight of the modern demand for public, empirical, scientific corroboration of all statements of belief, the essence of Christianity withered. End of quote. What is the problem with this thought? What is the author missing? What does this excerpt teach us about the limits of what science and reason can know of the reality of God and his love for us? What does this show us about the need for revealed truth, truth that human science and reason cannot reach in and of themselves? And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. One, how would you as a Christian answer the question, what is man? How would your answer differ from that of people who don't believe in the God of the Bible? Two, how surely are the dead beyond death, wrote Cormac McCarthy. Death is what the living carry with them. Why should our understanding of what happens after death give us comfort regarding our beloved dead? Can we not draw some consolation or any at all, knowing that they are at peace, at rest, free from so many of the toils and troubles of life? 3. Why do you think that even in the most miserable of situations, most people cling to life, regardless of how bad that life seems to be? 4. Discuss what the cross teaches us about the value of humanity, about the value of even a single life. Inside Story Our mission story this week is the third part of Filling the Emptiness, and it's the last chapter as well. One Friday evening, Elena cried throughout the church service. The visiting minister noticed and asked the pastor about her. When he learned that she had problems with her family, he offered her a job caring for his children. Elena knew that her father would never permit her to work for a Seventh-day Adventist church, so she told the Adventist minister that she would let him know later whether or not she could accept his kind offer. During the following week, Elena asked her father several times for permission to work for this family, but he always refused. Why don't you let me work for these people? Elena finally asked him. You have told me to look to Adventists for my food, but you won't let me work for Adventists. Finally, he gave permission for Elena to go work for the Adventist family. She was thrilled. She could live with an Adventist family, attend every worship service, enjoy family worship, and read her Bible and Adventist books without fear. She grew spiritually during the year she lived with this family, but then the pastor moved and Elena faced returning to her father's home. Her brother had moved to Spain, and Elena convinced her father to allow her to join her brother there. Her father allowed her to go, sure that his son would keep her from the Adventist church. But when her brother met her at the station, he astounded her with an invitation. This Sabbath, let's go to church. 
he had begun to attend the Adventist church. The two went to church together, and in a short time, Alina was baptised. As time went on, however, and Alina still hadn't been able to find work in Spain, she began to think about returning to Romania. But her brother challenged her. Where is your faith? I thought you trusted God. Alina realised that her brother was watching her and that she must be strong. They prayed that she would find work, and soon she found work with a family that gave her Sabbaths off. Alina's father now regrets the harsh words that he spoke to her, but he has told her that if she ever returns home, she must leave her religion behind. And that, she says, she will never do. Alina Makanu lives in Coslada, a suburb of Madrid in Spain. And this Sabbath I expect her back at my home church at Landsborough in Queensland, Australia. This week's lesson has been read by Dr Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.